the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there. Welcome to the program this Tuesday at lunchtime. You're with me, Dan Fitzgerald. Thanks a lot for your company. On the program today, the hemp industry is pushing to establish a cooperative research centre for hemp in an attempt to kickstart the growth of the crop. The industry is at the right size at the moment. There is a, a lot of work now going around carbon sequestration and carbon storage. And also we're very aware of how short we need to keep our supply chains because of the, the recent problems with COVID, etc. Also today, annual allocations for water licence holders have been announced by the Territory Water Controller. Just how much water will be you be allowed to use this year, I'll tell you soon. And we pay tribute to John Dyer of Hayfield Station, a former president of the NT Cattlemen's Association, who was farewelled in a funeral in Catherine this morning. He loved the Territory and he loved Territorians. And he just wanted to see a, a better deal for the, for the rural people in the Northern Territory and, and cattlemen in particular. Yeah, he was uh, also one of the pioneers of getting the live export trade out of Darwin started. Uh, I'll tell you more before one thirty. But first up today, I want to talk biosecurity. There's more than 900 people from across Australia tuned into a Department of Agriculture webinar on lumpy skin disease yesterday. That is a pretty big turnout for an online event, in my experience. The disease, it poses a huge threat to cattle and dairy industries right across the country who are now on high alert after lumpy skin disease was detected in one of Australia's nearest neighbours just over in Indonesia last month. Hugo Ricard-Bell reports. Lumpy skin disease is a serious insect spread disease which can cause skin lesions, loss of appetite, fever and in some cases death in cattle and buffalo. Over the last few years, it has quickly spread through Asia, and last month it was detected in over 30 villages on the Indonesian island of Sumatra. Yesterday, the Department of Agriculture brought together a whole host of animal representatives, cattle producers and live exporters to discuss the ongoing efforts to combat the spread of the disease in Indonesia in the hope of stopping lumpy skin from making it to Australia. Chief Vet Dr Mark Ship told the crowd that the government was responding to the outbreak in a number of ways. Firstly, we provided support to Indonesia. We uh, provided financial support uh, for the vaccination program. We're also providing technical support and expertise around the rollout of vaccines and vac- vaccination logistics. In the area of surveillance, Australia has ramped up surveillance for lumpy skin disease with our Northern Australian Quarantine Strategy now performing additional surveillance on wild animals in the north of Australia. NABSnet is a network of private veterinarians equipped with support and funding for undertaking investigations on suspicious cases during their work. If lumpy skin disease was to reach Australian shores, Dr Ship explained biosecurity measures such as zoning or quarantining infected areas would not work for the Australian cattle industry because most countries won't recognise zoning arrangements and will only trade when the disease isn't present at all in the country. A better approach is to start to vaccinate in an area 
well in advance of the vectors so that when they move from the infected herds, they are only encountering vaccinated and hopefully immune cattle. This requires vaccines to be used preventatively in free areas rather than just as an emergency response in infected areas. Having the vaccine in itself is insufficient. You must also be able to deliver it to the cattle in a comprehensive and efficient manner. If lumpy skin disease were to enter northern Australia, we would have the challenge of large numbers of cattle on extensive holdings. In Indonesia, the delivery of the vaccine has been hampered by a range of factors, including lack of capacity in cold chains, inability to catch, corral and vaccinate cattle that are free-ranging, and lack of operational funds at the provincial and district levels. Lumpy skin disease has been eradicated before. In 1989, it was detected in Israel and was eventually stamped out in 2016. Former Chief Veterinarian Officer of Israel, Dr Nadav Galon, gave insight into his experience. Uh, We started uh, annual vaccination by private vets because the government didn't have enough force. And actually, in our situation, the farmers, the herders have to pay for the vaccine, which has some effect on the compliance. But I think with the tragedy of the big outbreak in 2013, that was quite practical. So between uh, once that uh, outbreak of 2013 subsided, um, from 2014 to 2016, mandatory vaccination was imposed on the whole country and compliance was good, probably about 80% or more. Vaccinating cattle for a disease yet to come into Australia can be dangerous, as group leader for the emergency disease investigation at the CSIRO, James Watson, explains. There are a number of reasons uh, why we don't do this. In a vaccinated population, you don't get 100% protection, and it is possible that the disease can be introduced under the cover of vaccination and be very hard to detect. Uh, It is much easier to detect and respond early to an outbreak uh, um, in, uh, in a situation where it's going to be confused with vaccination. And that's a general approach that's taken for many diseases. Nonetheless, it's really critical if we are going to respond to an outbreak of a disease like this, that um, that we have the cap- capability for vaccination lined up and ready to go. And we're not trying to source and understand vaccines after an outbreak has already occurred. So looking to the future, There's a real opportunity here to apply modern vaccine technologies um, to lumpy skin disease, things like recombinant subunit vaccines, mRNA vaccines, such as we've seen with COVID in recent times, things that allow uh, a single-dose application of um, vaccines that didn't include a live virus would obviously provide a huge improvement in capability. At the end of his talk, Dr Ship made the point that vigilance was the key to ensuring lumpy skin disease doesn't take over the Australian cattle industry. Biosecurity is everyone's business, so I encourage everyone, and by that I mean absolutely everyone, to help keep Australia safe. I also call upon everyone here to help spread the word, educate those who are not familiar with lumpy skin disease. We need everyone who interacts with cattle and buffalo to be aware of the signs of lumpy skin disease and who to tell if they suspect the disease and the urgency of doing so. There may be some false alarms, but that's okay. In fact, it's a good sign that the message is getting through and being taken up. If these signs add up, then don't hesitate. Contact your local government authority, veterinarian 
or the emergency animal disease watch hotline immediately. Remember, a false alarm is the best case scenario. That is Dr Mark Ship. He is Australia's Chief Veterinary Officer and he was speaking there on a webinar yesterday uh, talking to producers about this lumpy skin disease. It's attracted a lot of attention right across Australia. It's not just a problem for Northern Australia if this disease gets into the country. It could impact, as we said, all sorts of export commodities, a live export trade, some box beef, the dairy industry's exports. They could all be impacted if lumpy skin gets into the country. Um, If you want some more information on the disease, uh, it's pretty easy to find. Just type in lumpy skin disease and uh, head to the Australian Agriculture website, the Department of Ag's website, and there's lots of information there. Yo, country. Hello, my name is Otto Campion. Pulmania, they call me from Bushnam. I'm an Arifia swamp ranger. I'm working um, with many countrymen. And you're listening to the Country Hour. Well, the Energy Minister Angus Taylor and Shadow Minister Chris Bowen from Labor, they've both addressed a major carbon market conference laying out their policies for the carbon market. The sector, it's been in a bit of upheaval in recent weeks with a raft of changes, as David Clawton reports. First, it was the announcement that carbon farming would qualify as primary production, attracting some big tax advantages. But then, the shock announcement by the government that it was changing the rules to allow farmers to opt out of the government's emissions reduction fund, the ERF, where they're paid as little as $12 a tonne for storing carbon. That's so they can sell it to the voluntary market instead, which rose to nearly $50 a tonne a few weeks ago. The market crashed on that news, however, and then just days later, the ABC broadcast claims from a whistleblower from the government's own committee responsible for integrity in the carbon trading system, who claimed that many schemes weren't delivering on their promises, and the system was a rort. Federal Energy Minister Angus Taylor dismissed those claims, saying the data that had subsequently been released did not substantiate them, and he said that even major environment groups were now distancing themselves. Much of the concern is about schemes that promote forestry on marginal land and projects that are taking up good farming land, leading to a loss of agricultural production. Here's how he's addressing those concerns with a new ministerial veto power. My department has finished consulting on changes to the ERF rules to reduce the risk of native forest regeneration projects having adverse impacts on regional Australia. On Friday the 8th of April, those changes will commence. Notifications will be needed for any proposed native forest regeneration projects or project expansions that are more than 15 hectares hectares and more than one third of a farm. Native forest regeneration projects of that size will only be able to go ahead if the Minister for Agriculture doesn't make a finding that they'll have material adverse impacts on agricultural production or local communities in the region. And on the opt-out changes to the Emissions Reduction Fund, here's how he justified those. The regulator would have been obliged to pursue legal remedies under the contract, including suing for debts resulting from non-delivery. A disorderly exit of this nature would inevitably lead to disputes over damages for each failed delivery. By contrast, the exit arrangement provides for an orderly transition away from the fixed delivery contracts. The exit arrangement was deliberately a minimal change, does not alter rights under the contract. It simply streamlines a contractual process 
into an administrative arrangement, avoiding the need for protracted litigation and avoiding uncertainty for all parties, including the market. The changes won't reduce the amount of funding available to ERF projects and in fact will allow more projects to be supported. In the 2022-23 budget, we'll invest $20.4 million to empower Australian farmers to participate in the ERF through soil carbon projects. Our goal is to increase the number of soil carbon projects from the current 262 to 5,000, covering 500,000 hectares by 2025. That would be a massive increase in the number of schemes. Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy Chris Bowen reaffirmed Labor's target of reducing emissions by 43% by 2030 and their support for the carbon market. But he criticised the government for its handling of the sector and he said he'd conduct a review which would include the claims that some carbon credit schemes were a fraud. I have to say the allegations aired this week were concerning. But it's not to say that I accept them at face value. It is to say they warrant further scrutiny. On the changes made to the Emissions Reduction Fund to allow people to opt out and the new veto powers for the Minister over some projects, he criticised the government for creating uncertainty. Now, not all of these changes are bad. Some are even welcome, like the treatment of carbon farming as primary production. But taken together, they represent an unacceptable level of intervention and uncertainty for your sector. And that uncertainty has been exacerbated by the government's failure to consult those who know the market best, you. In particular, I regard the government's failure to consult on the ERF contract changes as a shocking ambush of the sector, an utterly unacceptable way of doing business. It's no wonder the spot market crashed in the way it did. And I'm here to tell you that an Albanese Labor government would take a very different path. So last December, long before these allegations, Labor committed that our review of the ACU framework would also consider integrity. And I think that's important in two ways. Firstly, in identifying and addressing any issues that do exist in projects or methods. But secondly, in building public support and confidence in the offset market. As on most issues in this election campaign, there's not much of a gap between the Coalition and Labor. But for the carbon market, including farmers who are weighing up whether to get involved in this potentially booming sector, there's a lot of change to digest. That is David Clawton reporting there on policies for the carbon market from both the major parties. It is 15 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. My name is Dan Fitzgerald and you're on ABC Local Radio Uh, As we go to air right now, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce and the Ag Minister David Littleproud are both campaigning in Darwin. They're giving a press conference right now. I've had half an ear on it. Uh, Much of the talk has been about the budget announcement for upgrades to the Darwin ports. Uh, That March budget, it flagged $1.5 million for a future spend for the dredging of a shipping channel and the creation of a wharf or offloading facility. Uh, David Littleproud He announced some funding through the Northern Australia Development Program. Uh, Part of that uh, was for a fishing company, $10.5 million to Austral Fisheries to purchase five fishing vessels, additional quota, and to build a sorting and packaging facility. Uh, To quote the press release there, this will allow Austral to become one of the largest tropical snapper quota holders in Australia. Hi, my name is Remy. I'm working at a tropical fruit farm out in the rural area of Darwin. We're a mango and dragon fruit grower with three different varieties. the red, white and yellow. 
and you're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio. Now, we often hear quite a bit about the potential for hemp. Uh, a lot of time when we mention cotton, people say, why aren't we growing industrial hemp instead? Well, part of the reason is because that industry, it is still trying to get off the ground. It's got a number of teething problems about production and manufacturing. Uh, but a group is aiming to solve those sort of problems, pushing for the establishment of a cooperative research centre for hemp. I'll tell you more after a bit of John Mayer. Bit of John May there with Queen of California. It is 10 minutes to one here on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio. My name is Dan Fitzgerald. Well, the hemp industry and hemp researchers are trying to establish a cooperative research centre for the crop. Uh, the CRC, it'll aim to help hemp growers increase productivity, competitiveness and sustainability in the industry. And Professor Gavin Ash, he's the interim CEO of the group, CRC for hemp, he says the industry is at the right stage to get a bit of a leg up. Well, I think it's right for the hemp industry because a lot of the what we're looking at from a federal government perspective is we are looking at manufacturing as an initiative. And so we're tying the industry or the production to the manufacturing. And that's what we have to do for that whole supply chain. The industry is at the right size at the moment. There is a, a lot of work now going around carbon sequestration and carbon storage. And also we're very aware of how short we need to keep our supply chains because of the, the recent problems with COVID. With the issues the CRC is looking at, you mentioned it's it's industry-based, so the industry probably hasn't chosen many yet. But are there big ones that come to mind that would be the early driving force for this? Yeah, we have a number of uh, industries that are very interested at the moment. I'm a little reticent to name them at this stage, but they are both manufacturing, there are areas in genetics, plant breeding, groups from the medicinal cannabis and from the industries around food and fibre. So a really broad base of industries that we're talking to at the moment. Is it challenging to try and meld those worlds? Because the medicinal cannabis industry, I'm guessing, would be quite significantly different from industrial hemp itself. Yeah, that, it is, that is one of the things that we really do need to, to bring the whole industry together to give it a single voice. But there are a lot of commonalities even within those. So for the need, for example, for education and upskilling people around the hemp industry, that goes from industrial across to medicinal all the way. So who's involved? So at the moment we have uh, University of Southern Queensland, we have Southern Cross University, we have Deakin University and CSIRO. Green Lab as a small industrial partner and uh, New South Wales DPI. We have commitments from other organisations but they haven't signed on the dotted line yet so we just can't say too much yet. Would you say that more of the focus or more of the support for the CRC needs to come from the grower side or the industry side? Look, I think it needs to be both. I think the uh, growers need to have a surety that they've got somewhere to sell their product. The industry needs to know that they can get the product to build the the, uh, things that they want to build and sell. So it's the whole supply chain is what we need. Mm. At the moment, most uh, industrial hemp growers here in Tasmania aren't doing it as their only crop because things are still sort of in the early stages. They're doing it as part of a a mixed operation, whatever that may be. When you're sitting there as a relatively new farmer of of hemp and you're looking at a proposal for a CRC, I imagine the question probably comes up, what, what am I going to get out of it myself? And I imagine it's a question you've faced as well. 
Yeah, and some of it will be having a market, having a market differentiation, being able to have the support packages, for example, agronomic packages around the hemp growing in different regions because not everyone is only a hemp, hemp grower, as you've indicated. They are mixed farming systems. And so how does this fit into the overall farming system to make the whole farm more profitable and more sustainable over time? You also mentioned earlier you didn't want to step on any toes or, or kind of copy copy anything that's going on at the moment. Uh, AgriFutures are doing some research right now. Do you see a cooperation between the CRC and AgriFutures? Yeah, absolutely. We're very, very keen on that sort of collaboration between the R&D corporations. So we're actually looking at other R&D corporations as well and to see where they can actually fit into what we're doing. We think it's better if there's a holistic approach and we're all aware of what's going on. There are other applications in other areas and we're trying to get make sure that we're aware of all of those because we really do need to make sure that we're spending people's money well not just spending people's money. We're, we're at the bid stage. We are very interested in talking to any uh, people who may be interested in becoming involved, and we do have a website that they can visit. Uh, what's the timeline, just quickly? So the timeline at the moment is the full application needs to be submitted in July or August this year. We're, that hopefully will go through a couple of iterations. We'll have an outcome April next year for funding to start for 10 years, starting in 2023. Professor Gavin Ash. He is from the University of Southern Queensland and he's also the interim CEO of the group CRC for Hemp. He was speaking there with our reporter, Luke Radford. At the going down of the sun and in the morning. Wherever you are this Anzac Day, pay your respects to Australia's veterans. Join us as we light up the dawn. We will remember them. Tune in to our coverage throughout the day across the ABC. Commemorate with us on ABC TV, ABC Radio and on the ABC Listen app. Applications are now open for farmers to apply for a Nuffield scholarship. Uh, Ord Valley grower Fritz Bolton, he is a 2021 scholarship recipient and he's exploring how environmental and mechanical tools can help farmers manage heavy soils during the wet season. Uh, you get to do all sorts of different study of your choice uh, if you become a Nuffield Scholar. Uh, Fritz Bolton, he's recently returned from a trip to the UK for an international Nuffield conference. And he says, while things didn't exactly go to plan, uh, he highly recommends the Nuffield experience. It didn't take me very long to test positive for COVID when I got over there, which then meant I isolated and pretty much missed most of the the Nuffield conference. Now, I still had some connections and I was able to participate in some of the programs and got to meet some of the people. That was uh, extremely special and um, I really appreciated those moments. What were the key takeaways that you got from your short time there? Agriculture is incredible and there's so many incredible people involved in it. The key to finding solutions to work the land and feed the world are not necessarily technology, not necessarily capital, but are people. And when you when you mix with some of these really incredible people through this Nuffield network, it gives me a great amount of joy and hope. Yeah, it's incredible. Do you have any trips planned or are there more conferences or when do you have to hand down your final findings? Yeah, so the next trip will be in June where we'll be going to Singapore, Holland, 
Canada and the US. So that's a four-week trip with 10 other scholars where we get hosted in those countries and get shown around. So that's, you know, it's, it's really exciting. Um, you only hear good things about those trips and it teaches you new things about yourself that you didn't know were possible. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. So that'll be the next thing. And, uh, yeah, look, hoping to present at the end of 2023 and have a have some results and a report it's for me that the the nuffield um story so far has been incredible i've been so encouraged by it applications and i open for 2023 scholarships and i really encourage people that especially the people that think oh i'm not quite good enough i might be too young i might be too old they're the people that we want to apply for nuffield scholarships if i had just done my application in my first interview and not received the scholarship, I would have still been, I would have, I learnt so much just from that process. Doing the application was, it was a little bit like doing a strategic plan for our business and, and, and personally for myself. So even if I wouldn't have been selected, I reckon I would have gained so much from that. So I'd really like potential scholars to, to have a go. That is Ord Valley farmer Fritz Bolton. He's a 2021 Nuffield Scholarship recipient. As he said there, Nuffield Scholarships, uh, they are open now for application. Uh, These are scholarships which allow primary producers the opportunity to travel and study an ag topic of their choice. If you're keen, uh, you've got until June 17 to get your application in. G'day, it's Mick Jacoby here from NT Hayseed and Grain. I'm just getting gearing up to grow some hemp in the Douglas Daily and you're listening to the Country Hour. We're approaching the one o'clock news. Up after the news, we will be paying tribute to John Dyer. He's of Hayfield Station. He's been there from the 70s and he was farewelled at a funeral in Catherine this morning. We'll be hearing more about John's life after one o'clock. Andrew Dalgleish, Foxalicious Fruit, just out of Catherine. Uh, when I get a spare moment on the tractor, I like listening to uh, Matt and the team on uh, the Country Hour. Dan Fitzgerald on deck with you here today at the Country Hour. Uh, always remember, if you miss any of our podcasts, they're available. The show is available on podcast in the afternoon. We're available on the ABC Listen app. We're also on Channel 25 on your telly. Still to come for you today, uh, we're going to be paying tribute to John Dyer of Hayfield Station near Daly Waters. He's a former president of the NT Cattlemen's Association and a life member of that organisation too. He was farewelled this morning in Catherine. He loved the territory and he loved Territorians and he just wanted to see a, a better deal for the for the rural people in the Northern Territory and, and cattlemen in particular. Yeah, that'll be on your radio soon. Let's see what's been happening in the weather. We've got Moses Rako at the Bureau today. G'day Moses, how you doing? I'm going well, thank you. That's the way. Uh, rainfall in the last 24 hours. Uh, was there much in rain gauges across the Territory? Not that much, um, but that 
potentially will be changing over the next couple of days. Um, Gove took the winners there to 9am this morning at 14 millimetres. Uh, Pearling Gimpy had 12. And then we had some other much smaller readings, uh, around 2 millimetres or so around Groot and Manningridi yesterday. Or, sorry, to 9am this morning. But we are actually seeing... Um, moisture uh, extend west across the top end and actually even into southern in south as well into the Gregory and Carpentaria district so we've actually seen some some good falls uh, take place um, with Borolula since 9am this morning as uh, coming up with at the moment around 23 millimeters um, and that's probably looking like with that moisture increasing might see some better falls over the next couple of days Across the top end. Yeah, 23 mils at Borrelula, that would be very welcome. Um, having a look at the radar now, there's a, a, quite a group of clump of clouds that's sort of heading um, heading west over Man and Greater at the moment. Yeah, that's right. There's a, a fairly extensive amount of moisture that's uh, making its way towards the west. We've actually seen it... Um, um, from our the balloon that we release every day around Darwin, it's showing actually some moisture in, increasing as well. But that's going to continue to improve uh, during this evening. So those winds pushing those storms and showers across are also increasing as well. So there's probably becoming a better chance of actually seeing those showers and storms um, along uh, around the Daly District. Um, quite extensive now across the uh, Arnhem and extending into the western parts of the top end um, later this afternoon and evening so that's a that's a good sign um, the moisture there probably extending like I said into the Gregory and Carpentaria districts uh, today and tomorrow so um, some some hopefully some good falls particularly around Catherine and actually seeing with that cloud cover those temperatures particularly across the uh, around the base of the top end and around Borolula as well seeing those temperatures um, just moderate a little with that uh, shower and cloud activity so that's a welcome relief no doubt not only with the rainfall but with those temperatures we've been seeing over the last week um, some really <laughs> actually got some April records as well uh, around places like Nooka, um MacArthur River and, and some other places near the base of the top end. It's been quite uh, quite hot, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah that's for sure. So that, that moisture is going to hang around for a couple of days? Well, definitely over the eastern parts of the top end. That's probably going to continue into next week at this stage, it looks like. The only thing is on the western side, you're probably starting to see the return of some dry air pushing in. Um, from the base of the top end um, and into western parts, probably from Friday. Unfortunately, it looks like it might stick around a little um, into the weekend. So um, it's going to the effect of that will reduce the, sh the the showers and storms over probably inland parts of the Daly District, Southern Daly District, um, and around Catherine. Unfortunately, um, that's going to be from Friday onwards, though. Um, the moisture is going to continue, like I said, across um, the the eastern and maybe the northern parts and northern coasts of the uh, of the top end as we head into the Easter long weekend. Um, that being said, there looks like um, I should probably mention too over the central and southern parts, looking like those above average temperatures for April will set to continue. Unfortunately, um, we're not really seeing a, a decent high push into the southern parts of the country or even to central Australia, really flushing out the heat that's um, 
it's probably going to linger into right across the weekend, unfortunately. So those temperatures around Alice Springs, Yalara, and even the Barkley around Tennant Creek, looking hovering around the mid-30s, actually, um, right through the weekend at this stage. Yeah, okay, um, not great camping conditions. It's, um, at it's 35, not going to be comfortable. Degrees. That's right. The minimums might drop out um, to sub-20 degrees over the, the coming days, but... That being said, there is some cloud about during the afternoons that might help you know, provide some cloud cover around the Tanami and uh, Lassiter districts during the day, and that could linger uh, overnight in those locations, so it might keep those minimums a little bit warmer as well. So yeah, like you said, it's not going to be that um, comfortable there. There is a trough that's over Western Australia. It's really struggling to push into the NT properly. It might just push into maybe the Lassiter district, but like I said, we haven't got that high to push it well north into the central districts, you know, and we're not really seeing that. So there might be a trough lingering around, which is probably helping with that um, cloud cover as well. Um, so not expecting much rainfall, though, uh, in the southern parts of the NT at this stage. Most of the rainfall are going to be restricted to the the northern half and particularly the top end and eastern top end as we head into the weekend, long weekend. Yeah, okay. Thanks for the update, Moses. You're welcome. Uh, it's Moses Rako there at the Weather Bureau. It is 12 minutes past one. G'day, I'm Mark Smith from Darwin Fruit Farms. We're out in the pineapple paddocks at the moment and you're listening to the Country Hour. And just quickly, an announcement on water allocations. Top-end irrigators will be able to access 100% of their water allocation this year after a decision by the NT Water Controller. So every year the Water Controller makes an assessment on the amount that water licence holders will be able to use, up to 100% of course, depending on the environmental flows in rivers and aquifers. And this year, licence holders in the Catherine, Ulu, Manaranka, Darwin, Rural and Adelaide River regions, they'll all be able to use the full amount of their licence. And we have been trying to get an interview with the water controller on the program to explain this decision. We'll hopefully bring in that interview tomorrow. Cattleman John Dyer of Hayfield Station is being farewelled in Catherine today. He was a former president and life member of the NT Cattlemen's Association and he was also a bit of a pioneer in helping getting the live export trade started out of Darwin. John's son, Justin Dyer, he told Max Rowley about how John first came to the Territory in the early 70s and he rode the ups and downs of the northern beef industry. Well... John and Val Dyer came up to the Northern Territory in 1972. John took a job on for elders in Catherine here, actually opened the branch for elders in Catherine. And Val came up as a school teacher. And I think they spent a couple of really fun years with elders in Catherine and then they got the opportunity to manage Hayfield Shenandoah Station uh, for a group out of Sydney Um, and at the time I think it was perhaps maybe the start of uh, a beef price slump and the owners were having trouble selling the property and in the end I think 
the owners and John and Val did a deal and they became the owners of Hayfield Shenandoah in the mid-late 70s and really haven't sort of looked back since. But they had to... Uh, it was a big battle for them to to help an industry that was really struggling at the time. Um, there was meatworks around, but, you know, prices received were very poor and it got to the point where it wasn't covering the freight. So it became obvious that something had to be done there and live export looking to the north, our northern neighbours, they uh, believed was the answer and to do that they had to go through a a program to uh, rid the northern herd of um, exotic diseases and the two main ones were brucellosis and tuberculosis and I think that campaign lasted for seven years and then after that uh, well the live export took off and they were sort of getting a dollar a kilo Catherine live weight delivered Darwin and, and that was just huge money back then and, and really they um, ever since then it's, it's really taken off and people have uh, been able to improve their genetics and their herds and capital infrastructure and expand and, and it's really grown grown the whole north of Australian beef industry Sounds like um, John faced no shortage of, of challenges in those early years especially, but always stepped up to the, to the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. He, um, he was keen to, to see it work and, I mean, he, was, he just wanted to help and um, to make sure it was right and, and he thought that he had the, um, the skills and the intelligence and the persuasiveness, I suppose, to, to get groups of people together that were actually very isolated um, geographically and different markets as well you know there was a lot of uh, sort of more southern and central uh, regions that uh, were happy to perhaps remain with a domestic market but the northern the northern guys were were dead set on live export and, and to bring all the parties together for the better good took a big effort um, and yeah he, he uh, sh- certainly didn't shy away from any challenges. What kind of person was he for, for people that, that didn't know him? Well he was you know he was dad to me and although maybe we didn't seem as much as we'd would have liked to um, you know whenever he was at home he was he was a great dad and and really hands on and and hands on on the station and taught us all you know I suppose most of what we know and um, yeah, he's a really great family man and 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 he was uh, just a good bloke everyone really liked him um, had a good sense of humor and uh, he's uh, pretty persuasive, but you know he had a lot of compassion for people and tolerance and understanding, and I think that's what people liked about him, and that's 
what uh, helped us, what helped him and uh, the whole of the BTEC team sort of get that through. And how would you like John to be remembered? Well, in saying all that, JD was pretty humble, really. Uh, I think, honestly, he just would like to be remembered as a good bloke and and someone that was community and civil-minded and he loved the Territory and he loved Territorians and he just wanted to see a, a better deal for the, for the rural people in the Northern Territory and, and cattlemen in particular. That is Justin Dyer speaking there about his late father, John Dyer, whose funeral is on today in Catherine. Our thoughts from all of us here at the Country Hour team go out to the Dyer family. It is 19 minutes past one. Bit of Slim Dusty there with the ringer from the top end. It is 21 minutes past one here on the Country Hour. Now this year the Australian Australian beekeepers are celebrating a very special anniversary. Uh, it marks 200 years since European honeybees were successfully brought into the country. Since then, of course, bees have become absolutely vital to Australian agriculture, pollinating just so many different crops. Uh, Trevor Weatherhead, he's the chair of the Australian Honeybee Industry Council. He told Megan Hughes how the first honeybees arrived in Australia. Well, we uh, had several attempts to get some in. In uh, 1810, Samuel Marsden brought some in from Rio de Janeiro and he put them in the governor's residence at Parramatta in Sydney, but they died out. In 1822, we had seven hives that came out on a ship from Cork in Ireland and they landed in Sydney on the 9th of March 1822. Uh, They were auctioned off and sold to various people and so 1822, 200 years ago, was the first successful introduction of honeybees to Australia. So where did they go? A couple of different people bought them. There was a, a gentleman called Mr Isley who bought some and uh, other people like, uh, I think it was Blacksley, I'll just want to check my book is, uh, here to let you know, I think it was a fellow called Blacksley uh, also bought some too, and there was a fellow called George Parr who bought some, and he uh, then later on sold those off later on. So uh, that's the, sort of the way they went there. And did they have orchards? What was their interest in having honeybees? Well, the main reason for bringing them in was uh, for honey and beeswax that was the main thing at the time you know the sort of pollination wasn't an issue that we're aware of because we know that in uh, 18 or was in an article in the sydney gazette on the on the 1st of november 1822 uh we shall be able to add honey and wax to our numerous productions so uh, that was sort of the main reason was for honey and uh wax beeswax was beeswax was used a fair bit in different stages there and just going back here it was john blacksland of newington who got some. Once they were initially brought in then, where did they go to? How did the industry start to take off? Uh, well, basically they kept uh, reproducing hives. Those bees they brought in are what we call the English black bee, which is Apis mellifera mellifera, and they used to swarm quite prolifically, so they would catch those swarms. And from there they sort of gave them out to different people around the place and different people took them like over the Blue Mountains, took them up north, took them into state and then other states, for instance, uh, bought bought bees in from different areas and that's how they sort of established throughout Australia. 
And so the the initial interest was still very much for that honey and then pollination was the secondary benefit to it. Well, pollination really is only a, a more recent type thing that's came in. In those days, uh, when you think about it, the crops that they grew were things like wheat, oats, corn, and those, those crops don't need pollination by honeybees. They're all wind pollinated, so the crops that were growing at the time really didn't need pollination. So that pollination sort of wasn't an issue then like it is today where you know we have something like about 14.2 billion dollars worth of crops in Australia that rely on honeybees for pollination so some of the things like our almonds watermelons rock melons honey honeydews macadamias things like that they sort of weren't really crops that they were growing in those early days it was those wind pollinated ones so bees didn't really become necessary till later on when we started planting some of these other crops what would you say has been some of the biggest challenges the industry has faced over the 200 years? It's, it's like you know, like any agriculture, bushfires, floods, droughts, they're our biggest challenges over time uh, that's worked there. So uh, you know, beekeepers are fairly resilient. They've learned to overcome them over the times. They'll continue on into the future. There'll be issues that we'll have to deal with uh, forever and a day within our industry. When would you say that the industry became really professionalised? Uh, well, for instance, in, in, I know here in Queensland in 1886, they formed the Queensland Beekeepers Association down in Victoria. I think it was around about the same time. And other states have formed the Beekeeping Association. So those associations allowed the beekeepers to come together and share ideas and to share the latest research. We've had beekeeping magazines. We've had one, for instance, the Australasian Beekeeper, which started about 1899 and is still going today. So that's able to publish the research that's there. And within the industry, uh, mechanisation, particularly transport, then allowed the beekeepers to be able to pick up their hives and take them to uh, different areas where the trees are flowering. So we became a migratory type industry instead of just uh, having hives in the one spot. So they're the, you know, the, the things that have helped our industry over the time grow and grow. What's your expectation for the future of the industry? I think the industry will go, go more and more to pollination. The honey, honey will certainly be a part of it because the return that the beekeepers get from pollination is not enough to secure them an income for the full year, so they definitely have to be producing honey to supplement their income to make it a reasonable return and make and make a reasonable living from it. So whilst pollination will certainly increase, the um, emphasis will still be on honey production uh, for the beekeepers to uh, earn their living. Well, that is the Australian Honey Bee Industry Council Chair Trevor Weatherhead speaking there to Megan Hughes. And keep your eye out for a special coin minted by the Australian Mint uh, celebrating a 200-year anniversary since European honeybees were successfully brought into Australia. Time now to check out the markets. Uh, we've got Cheryl Stevano with the report from Roma. Good afternoon. Numbers increased further this week with 5,707 head yarded at the Roma store sale. Cattle were drawn from a wide supplier with numbers continuing to arrive from the west and northwest in a yarding dominated by steers. Quality varied across the yarding and a good buying panel was present and operating including all regular processes. Steers were still selling at the time of this interim report. 
Overall, the market mostly eased across the steers from the previous week with prices reflective of yarding quality. However, quality cattle remain in demand. Medium weight steers to feed fell by 14 to 45, while heavyweight steers fell by 15. Lightweight steers under 200 kilos reached an interim top of 646.2, while lightweight steers under 280 kilos, which included a run of quality local Charolais Cross EU steers, made to an interim top of 782.2. Medium weight steers under 330 kilos sold to an interim top of 676.2, while medium weight steers under 400 kilos to feed reached an interim top of 634.2. Heavyweight steers to feed made to 572.2. This has been Cheryl Stavano for the National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that, Cheryl, there with the Roma Reports. Um, That is just about it for the Country Hour for today. But just a reminder that ABC TV and radio services will be switched off for a short time from 2pm today for 15 minutes to allow for some maintenance at our transmission facility. You'll be able to keep listening to the radio if you want via the ABC Listen app or through the website and you'll be able to keep watching the telly on ABC iView. And yes, that's it for the Country Hour for today. Uh, Thanks a lot for your company. I'll speak to you tomorrow.